In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. One of the great teachings of the Second Vatican Council, which recovered this very clearly from the Gospels, was that we're all called the holiness, that each Christian, each baptized person, and therefore potentially all of humanity, because we're all called in one form or another to baptism, to heaven, we're all called to a real holiness, to a real identification with God, participation in the life of God. St. Peter writes this very clearly to the first Christians. St. Peter writes, As he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter there quoting from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And when we read that in our Lord's presence, Lord Jesus praying with you in this time of prayer, we might be struck that it's kind of uh, a difficult demand, if not to say impossible. For instance, if someone who's really, really good at something said, you should be good at this too, because I'm good at it, we might think, well, I don't have your talent to be <laughs> to be good at it. I don't have your training. I'm not you. Imagine Tiger Woods telling us, you shall be good at golf because I'm good at golf. Well, we would just kind of scratch our heads and shrug our shoulders and, and walk away. Or if Serena Williams told us, you shall be good at tennis because I'm good at tennis. Again, we would be miffed and not take her seriously at all. And yet God says this to each one of us, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if we think about that in a a moralistic way or a kind of voluntaristic way, well then we miss a great point. Because sometimes we think, okay, the saints are those who always do what's right. The saints are those who never make a mistake. And they're just kind of machines of perfect conduct. They're always wanting what's good, always doing what's right, always being conscientious, always fulfilling their duty. And that for us is overwhelming and even impossible. And so this holiness, which is real, and this perfection, which is real, it's part of God's will for us. God wants to bring it about, can't be moral perfection. It can't be the holiness of someone who always does what's right or never makes a mistake. And this is because in the, in the Bible, the language of the Bible shows us that holiness is something that belongs exclusively to God. Holiness precisely tells us about the otherness of God, the radical transcendence of God. The word kadosh in Hebrew 
and then hagios in Greek, and then later sanctus in Latin, and our word holy. They all come from the idea of separation, that, that God is holy because he's separate, he's set apart, he's other, he's radically transcendent. To be holy is to be good, but to be holy in kind of a strange and even dangerous, threatening, and scary way. God says to Moses, no one sees my face and lives. And this is behind that holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts that we pray at the end of the preface, right before the Eucharistic prayer starts, and we make Jesus, who is God, present on the altar. And that prayer, holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory comes from this radical and very strange vision that the prophet Isaiah has of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, we read in chapter 6 of Isaiah, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so we get the impression that these very strange angelic creatures who are close to God are also radically different, radically other with their six wings and they're hiding their feet and their face kind of covering them almost to protect themselves from the glory of God from the majesty of God who's holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So receiving the vision of God, Isaiah says, Woe is me. It's such a contrast with my littleness, such a contrast with my sinfulness, and my pettiness, that I am in danger of being destroyed by the goodness of God, by the transcendence of God. His infinite glory is so different from my finite, small, creaturely, and sinful nature that I can't bear it. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, Go. 
and say to this people, Hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. What a wonderful image, Lord, of our relationship with you. If we see your goodness and see your holiness, we realize, if we have any humility and self-understanding at all, that we're doomed, (laughs) that we can't imitate it with our own will, we can't imitate it with our own goodness, and we have to cry out, woe is me. But then you, in your mercy, Lord, like you do with Isaiah, you give us a way out. You send that burning coal to purify him. You touch to his lips, and it purifies him and takes away his guilt and takes away his sin. What a great image of the sacraments, that this is what happens to us in confession, and this is what happens to us in communion. We can think of the host as this burning coal which comes with all the love of God, with God himself, to purify us, to make us capable of being united to God. So Lord Jesus, when we think about holiness, help us to think about it in the right way. It's not just being a good boy or a good girl trying to be perfect. It's a participation in a way of being and a mode of being that is way beyond our pay grade that would destroy us unless you made us capable of being in your presence and of communing with you. This concept of the holiness of God in the Old Testament is reflected in the temple where the most sacred part of the temple was called the Holy of Holies, where they thought that God especially dwelt. And that's where the um, the veil is, right? We read in, um, in the New Testament that when Jesus dies, the veil of the temple is rent. And so that presence of God in the Holy of Holies is kind of let loose <laughs> by Jesus' death. And so, such was the respect for... Um, for that place and for God's presence and the radical nature of God's transcendence that the Jews said that if you go into the Holy of Holies um, unworthily, right, that only the priest could go in on certain feast days and he had to go in with sacrifices, if you went in otherwise, you would die because, you know, because of this, right? As Isaiah says, woe is me, I've seen the transcendence of God and I'm incapable of seeing it, right? The contrast is too much. The power of God is overwhelming. And we're not sure if, um, you know, you would die because of that or because they would just kill you, right? Because it was a serious violation of of their uh, laws of worship. But in any event, there was that sense that, you know, God is a very serious being. And yes, Jesus reveals that he's love and that he's our father, but his nature and his holiness is is formidable. It's dreadful to our sinful nature. And so if we're going to participate in it, we need contact with him. And not just moral imitation, but sacramental as it were, mystical contact with him. And by mystical, I don't mean anything strange. I, all It is a little bit strange, actually. <laughs> but I don't mean anything strange in the sense of 
supernatural, miraculous behavior or uh, or signs, right, levitating or stigmata, etc. What mystical means is the catechism teaches us is access to Christ through the mysteries. And the mysteries are his death and his resurrection, which are transmitted to us and shareable to us through sacraments and through grace and through the prayer life. And so to be holy, to be called to holiness, is really essentially connection with our Lord. And that connection is connection with something that is very special and very radical. If you go uh, to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the place where the Temple stood for centuries until it was destroyed by the Romans in the first century, they'll tell you that many uh, pious Jews won't walk on the Temple Mount. And the reason they won't walk on the Temple Mount is because they're afraid of crossing the place where the Holies of Holies was, and they believe, in a certain sense, still is. And so such is their reverence for the Holy of Holies, right? God's presence and God's radical otherness, that Kadosh, 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 Sanctus, 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 that they're afraid of walking over the place because they're afraid that they might die, right? That it'll, you know, they'll walk there unworthily. And there's actually a Jewish airline that very carefully does not fly over the area of Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is because they uh, they think that, that the connection between the Holy of Holies and heaven is a literal connection that runs from the earth up into the heavens, right? And so they're afraid that if they fly the plane through it, you know, they'll, uh, the whole plane will be zapped out of existence because of the terrible presence of, of God's holiness. Or at least, you know, that they'll be committing some sort of sacrilege by entering the Holy of Holies unworthily. And so what chance do we have, Lord, if we can't imitate you directly because of our sinfulness, if you tell us to be holy as you are holy, and yet like Isaiah, we find ourselves so small and so sinful and incapable of goodness at your level. What chance do we have? Well, the chance is contact with Christ and contact with Christ, not just through imitation, but through prayer and through the sacraments and through the state of grace, that mystical contact with Christ, which he initiates, it's his initiative, it's his, it's his agenda. It's something that he wants, that he starts. And so we read very helpfully in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, something that helps us a lot in this context. For consider your call, brethren, St. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians. Not many of you were wise according to a worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts 
boasts of the Lord. An incredible passage, and so important for us to remember. St. Paul is saying, He is our righteousness. Christ is our goodness. Christ is our moral rectitude. He is our sanctification, right? He is our sanctity and redemption. And so this call to holiness is not a call simply to take some rules and some truths and with our own human effort try to match up to them or try to live them perfectly. Rather, it is to connect with our Lord, to let our Lord into our heart, to let our Lord into our mind, to let our Lord into our life and our will, and let him transform us. And yes, of course, it takes an effort, and we have to we have to figure out what he wants and do what pleases him and avoid what doesn't please him. But this happens, so to speak, from inside out. That he is our righteousness. He is our holiness and redemption. God is the source of our life in Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom. And this is why we can recognize fully, like Isaiah, that of ourselves, we're totally unworthy of God. We say, I am lost. What could I ever do to be like Christ who is without sin? What could I ever do to be merciful as my Heavenly Father is merciful? Or as Jesus puts it, perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. To recognize that kadosh, that hagios, that sanctus, that holiness, that otherness of God. Be called to it. That total inability of ours to correspond to this is made up precisely by Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. And so, Lord, yes, you are the model, the way, the truth, and the life, but it's a way and a truth and a life that you live and teach and walk in us. You're in us as an active principle. Jesus, you're in my heart in my life, trying to be yourself through me and through my actions and through my relationships and through my work, through my friendships. And Jesus says this so clearly, right? Uh, With regard to the Eucharist, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. So the Christian life is not our own project. It's not us trying to adapt ourselves to a moral doctrine, however beautiful and sublime. It's not us striving just with our own effort after some model external to us. No, rather it's this interpenetration of his life in our life and our life in his life. A number of years ago, it was very popular to see people, especially young people, wearing those bracelets which said WWJD. What would Jesus do? And that's a great question. It's a good guide right, for discernment of how to act and how to think, what to do. To think, well, what would Jesus do? And, and if we can come up with that, 
then that's a good answer, right? Well, this is what we should do too, in imitation of him. But I think even more, we should we should ask the question, W-I-J-D, what is Jesus doing? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is not dead. And Jesus is with us and in us. He's not far away. What is Jesus doing now? What is he trying to do through me? How is he trying to love people in my life through my love for them? How is he trying to teach people once again in my life through my sharing the gospel and my sharing his teachings with them? How is he trying to redeem the world once again or in connection with his eternal redemption through my sacrifices, through my trials, through my illness? St. Paul talks about this, making up in his own sufferings for what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Obviously, that's mysterious, but as members of his body, we also share in his redemptive passion. So, Lord, in my life, my daily life, with its joys and with its sorrows, with its triumphs and with its failures, with my relationships and my time alone, what are you up to? What are you trying to do? Not just what would you do if you were me. But what are you doing now, in me, through me, with me? Lord, help me to think of my life in this way, that every day is an opportunity, a moment, to let you be yourself once again. To let you be yourself, but now, in my life. St. Josemaria writes in the furrow, Look, we have to love God not only with our heart, but with His and with the hearts of all humanity throughout time. Otherwise, we would fall short of corresponding to his love. We have to love God and others, we can add, of course, with his heart, (laughs) not just with our heart. And that's the only way we can make uh, sense out of this tension between our being called to holiness and our being incapable of holiness because of holiness denoting precisely the radical transcendence, otherness, awesomeness of God, which by contrast shows up our littleness, lights up our pettiness and our sinfulness. The only way we can bridge that gap, Lord, is if you come and inhabit us and let us inhabit you. So we can ask our Lord, Lord, give me your heart for others. Help me, Lord, to give you space, freedom, to be yourself in my life. And what does that look like, Lord? Well, it could be different for each one of us. Perhaps some of us are too controlling. We don't want God to be provident. We want to make sure, try to make sure that the future and the present is secure in a way that's beyond our power. And so maybe giving Jesus more space in our life is not worrying about things we can't control and just trying to do the good we can do day by day, hour by hour. Maybe, Lord, it's letting go or accepting some tension in my life, some person who's difficult to forgive or to love who you've put in my life 
and just being more accepting of them as they are with their defects, loving them with their defects, as St. Jose Maria would say. Not letting it bother us so much that there is some tension or some bad feelings there. Right? Not letting those feelings dominate us, accepting them as a cross and loving anyway, being patient, being kind. Maybe, Lord, it's getting out of myself, not worrying so much about my health or my looks or my success and thinking more about others. Whatever it is, Lord, how do you want me to give more space to you in my life? Be holy, for I am holy. As he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And how does this happen? As we said, it happens through the sacraments, it happens uh, through confession and the Eucharist, in a particular way, after baptism. And then it also happens, I think, by presence of God, right? Being around our Lord, especially presence of God in times of contemplation, of mental prayer. Lord Jesus, holiness is contagious. And so if we just stay close to you, it rubs off on us. And if we just keep hanging out with our Lord and looking at him, well, we'll start imitating him, just like we start imitating the people who we spend time with. And sometimes we notice this, that we say something or that we, we make some gesture and we realize, oh, I got that from so-and-so. <laughs> I didn't always do that. Or, or that was the, when, the way my father would say something or the way my mother would say something. We imitate and we come to be like the people we're around and especially the people we admire. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I was um, on the wrestling team. And there was a senior, a guy named... Uh, Tim, Tim Kelsey. And Tim Kelsey was a good wrestler. And I thought he was a really uh, cool guy, too. And, you know, he was a big, strong guy. And he had this, he had this funny habit of tilting his head to the side. He kind of had this crooked neck slash head tilt thing going on. And it kind of made him look intimidating and tough and a little bit crazy. He had a little bit of a uh, of a lazy eye too. And so the combination of the head tilt and the uh, and the eye was um, was intimidating, right? <laughs> kind of funny, but intimidating. And so without realizing it, I started walking around with my with my head tilted a little bit to the left, like Tim. And then one day I walked into my my um, English class and Mrs. Bourne was the English teacher and she was the uh, mother of a friend of mine Brandon Bourne who's a great basketball player and she saw me and she said John is there something wrong with your neck and I hadn't realized I was doing this it was subconscious and I said I got embarrassed oh no nothing <laughs> nothing but for sure I was walking around with this little head tilt and maybe even trying to imitate his far away uh, lazy eye stare to poor effect, I'm sure. In any event, this should be what happens to us with our Lord, that we spend time with him, that we think about him, 
that we desire to imitate him in our appreciation of him. There's a great um, philosopher and literary critic, a guy named Rene Girard, and one of his big theories is the theory of mimetic desire. And that's a fancy way for saying that we imitate what we desire, that we come to be like what we want, what we appreciate. And this is part of our call to holiness, that we want God, we want Christ, we desire Christ, we love Christ, we love God. We're made for them. And therefore, to contemplate them, to be around them, will lead to this mimetic desire, this desire to be like them, to be one with them in our dispositions, in our behavior, in our prayer life, in our time, just to be around God, to experience the contagiousness of our Lord's holiness. For He is our righteousness and He is our sanctity, our sanctification. And He is our redemption. He is our wisdom. And we can go to Our Lady, she who always brings Jesus to souls. And we ask her, Our Lady, Queen of all saints, you are holy like no one else except God. Teach us this secret to holiness of being around our Lord, letting him live his life in us, using the means of the sacraments and our prayer life, not being voluntaristic, not falling into moralism or perfectionism, reducing the ideal of of holiness to our own project, our own efforts, which is impossible. We have to come to that point, all of us, where we say, woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Impossible for me to be good. And then we realize that we need Jesus to be our goodness and our righteousness and our strength. Our Lady, our Mother, Queen of all saints, pray for us.